Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Morning, Antioch. Today is March 7th, which means it has now been one year since our last in-person Sunday service at Bend High. We've been doing COVID modified church for a year, which means it's been one year and a week since I had the coronavirus. I haven't talked about this much publicly until now, but I actually came down with the Rona on February 27th of 2020 which means that if I had got tested at the time, I would have actually been the first confirmed case of COVID in the entire state of Oregon. I didn't end up finding out that I'd tested positive for the antibodies until a few weeks later. But I still like to think of myself as Oregon's patient zero and feel like I should probably get some sort of recognition. So I'm thinking of starting a GoFundMe or something. But um, it's been a wild year. And uh, we are now at over half a million lives claimed by COVID in the United States. We've lost a lot of people. And it's been a really rough year for all of us. But with vaccines rolling out now and herd immunity hopefully not too far off, things are looking much better than they have in a long time. We're not out of it yet, but I am grateful that it seems that there's an end in sight. So um, for us as a church, we still don't know exactly when and where we'll be able to start gathering again. And believe me, I am getting pretty tired of preaching to Kip every week, but I am excited for all of us to get together on Easter Sunday at Drake Park. We will have much to celebrate, and I can't wait to see you all there four weeks from today. Um, this morning, we're going to look at our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead, turn there, and uh, that's where we'll be. So here's a question for you. If you had to sum up the main theme of Christianity in just two or three words, what would you say? Maybe you'd say, God is love, or Jesus is Lord, or love your neighbor. And those would all be pretty good answers, but none of those is actually how the Apostle Paul summarizes the Christian faith in 1 Corinthians 1. So let's read together and see what Paul's two-word summary of Christianity is, starting in verse 22. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So what's Paul's two-word summary of Christianity? He says, we preach Christ crucified. It's not God is love, or Jesus is Lord, or love your neighbor, as good and true as all those things are, but Christ crucified. Like everything we need to know about God and life with God is contained in those two words. If you think about it, Christ crucified is easily the most depicted event in human history. Literally billions and billions of crosses and crucifixes have been painted, carved, forged, tattooed, or created in one way or another over the last 2,000 years. In fact, I bet most of us 
have one around our home or around our neck. Um, I've got a couple crosses that I've picked up around the world. Uh, this one I picked up in one of the most fascinating places I've ever been, uh, a Christian pilgrimage site in northern Lithuania called the Hill of Crosses. And it's this hill where thousands of crosses and crucifixes of all kinds and shapes are displayed and piled on top of each other. It started uh, just after World War I as a memorial site where Lithuanian Christians would place a cross for their family members who died in battle. And then from there it became this place where people would go and leave a cross as a prayer or as an offering of their faith. It's an amazing experience to walk around this hill immersed in crosses, pondering the loads and layers of significance in this symbol. I've never seen anything else like it. Um, here's another cross that I got. Uh, this one was when I was in Senegal in West Africa a few years ago. And uh, this cross was made by a group of young Senegalese, Senegalese guys who were raised Muslim but then converted to Christ and they call themselves the Taliban Yezu or the Jesus Taliban. And Taliban just means disciples. And so they have this shop, as you can see here, where they build all kinds of cool stuff, hand drums and home decorations. And they welded this cross for me. And I've gotten to stay there and hang out with these guys a few different times. So pretty much anywhere you go in the world, not everywhere, but almost every country and culture, you can find a cross. And where you find a cross, you find Christians who find life and meaning and hope in salvation in Christ crucified. But why? What is it about Christ's crucifixion that would cause Paul and billions of other Christ followers all around the world to see it not just as the center of our faith, but as the center of the universe? So what Paul says in verse 24 is that Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What does that mean? Well, at least part of what it means is that God's wisdom and power, the essence of who God is and what God is like, are most clearly displayed in Christ on the cross. Or in other words, Christ crucified is both how we know God and what we know of God. So the question that Paul's addressing here really has to do with the branch of philosophy that we would call epistemology. Epistemology deals with the theory of knowledge. It asks, how do you know what you know? So think of all the things that you know to be true. How did you learn that they're true? How do you know that they're still true? So I know that five plus five equals 10. I know that I have two brothers and one sister. I know that the Buccaneers won the last Super Bowl. I know that E equals MC squared. I may not know what that means, but I know it's true. Uh, I know that I like burritos, and I know that they speak Portuguese and Brazil. I know a lot of stuff, and so do you. But how did you come to know these things? Did you read it in a book? Did it happen to you personally? Did you see it on the internet so you know it must be true? How do we know what we know? Well, in epistemology, there's two main ways of answering that question. They're called rationalism and empiricism. So rationalists say that we know what's true through rational thinking. They say that the ultimate starting point for all knowledge is reason. So we can apply laws like logic and math, and we can deduce that certain things are true. 
Um, empiricists, on the other hand, say that knowledge comes from experience. We know what's true based on what we can see, taste, smell, hear, and feel. Uh, you have to have tangible evidence, something you can measure and record. So I know it's kind of abstract, but here's why this stuff matters. There are things that we all recognize as true, like 5 plus 5 is 10, but what about those things that some people claim are true and other people say they aren't? Something like the existence of God, for example. How can we actually know whether there's a God or not? I love talking about this stuff, especially with some of my non-Christian friends and neighbors. Like a few years ago, I was talking with one of my neighbors, and he was telling me about how, even though he's not a Christian or religious at all, he knows that there's a God, which made me super curious. He's a sharp, well-educated guy, college professor. So I asked him, how do you know that there's a God? And he goes on to tell me this amazing story about how when he was a young guy, he was out rock climbing. And he's way up on the face of this cliff, and he's free climbing with no ropes, and he gets stuck. And he's looking all around, and he's trying to find a direction that he can move, and he doesn't see anything, so he's just holding on for dear life. And he starts to panic. And even though he's an atheist at the time, he starts to pray. And he says, God, if you're there, I need you. Please help me. And then here's what happens. He opens his eyes, and all of a sudden, little lights appear all over the face of the rock. And he said that all the handholds lit up in green, and all the footholds lit up in red, and that he was able to follow the lights and climb to safety, no problem. Amazing story, right? And he goes, so that's how I know there's a God. So my neighbor is actually making an epistemological claim when he tells that story. He's saying, I know what I know because of something I've experienced. I can't explain it. I don't know why it happened, but I know it did. I saw it with my own eyes, so I know it's true. That's what we would call an empirical approach to knowledge. And then I have this other friend who had also been an atheist his entire life, but then somewhere around his mid-40s, he started thinking seriously about the possibility of a God. And one day he and I are having coffee and he tells me that for the first time in his life, he now believes that God exists. And so again, I ask him, well, how did you get there? And he says something like this. He says, as a scientist, I've always believed that science can explain everything except for love. He goes, I've always known there's this thing called love at the center of the universe and science can't explain it but it's the thing that's holding everything together now this guy's a nuclear engineer he's got a phd pretty intelligent dude and then he goes on i'm starting to think that maybe love isn't a thing but it's actually a person maybe god is love and he's the one at the center of the universe holding everything together that's a God I could believe in, which is so beautiful, right? So this guy didn't have any crazy rock climbing stories. He didn't witness any miracles or healings or supernatural wonders. He came to believe in God by thinking, by taking these innate ideas and applying logic to them. And he deduces that the most reasonable conclusion 
is that there's a God. So that is a rational approach to knowledge. It's not based on personal experience, it's based on reason and deduction. So there you go, a little lesson in epistemology. Now you know the difference between empiricism and rationalism. Now, here's why we're talking about this. I actually think that those two categories are pretty similar to the way Paul describes the two groups of people in the Corinthian church. In verse 22, he says that Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. So when it comes to their search for truth about God and life with God, one group of people is looking for a sign, a powerful experience, and the other group of people is looking for wisdom, a logical explanation. So the Jews are empiricists, if you will. They're looking for a sign, a, legitim a legitimizing miracle, which is exactly what John says in today's gospel reading. Jesus clears out the temple, and then in John 2, verse 18, the Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? So the Jews aren't going to trust Jesus until he gives them a supernatural experience. And then the Greeks, or the Gentiles, Paul uses those words interchangeably to describe non-Jewish people, in their quest for knowledge about who God is and what God's like, they want wisdom. They're looking for a compelling idea. Now, we know that the Greeks were known for their philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, these amazing intellectual traditions that set out to make sense of the world. So if the Greeks are going to take Jesus seriously, they're not looking for miracles. They're looking for answers. They want a compelling philosophical explanation. So those are the two groups of people that Paul is writing to in the Corinthian congregation. And I know that we also have both kinds of people in our congregation at Antioch. We've got people who are looking for signs and people who are looking for wisdom. We've got people who are looking for miracles and people who are looking for answers. Or another way of saying this is that some of us struggle in our faith because of the things that have happened in our lives. And others of us struggle in our faith because of the questions we have in our minds. Some of us are looking for a sign and some want wisdom. And Paul acknowledges as much about his readers, but what's interesting is that he doesn't say that's a bad thing. He doesn't shoot down either of these desires for power or for wisdom. But what he does is claim that both power and wisdom are ultimately found in Christ crucified. That Christ's death on the cross is both what we know about God and the way we know it. But he goes on to say that this message is one that's hard to swallow. Yes, the cross displays the power and wisdom of God, but it's a paradoxical kind of power and wisdom. It looks more like weakness and foolishness. In verse 23, he says that the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Or in other words, to those who were looking for a sign, the cross was offensive. And to those who were looking for wisdom, the cross was nonsense. The message of Christ crucified was an offense to the Jews and nonsense to the Greeks. 
Now, why would Christ crucified be an offense to the Jews? Well, because it says salvation comes through a crucified Jew. And they would say, well, we don't like the way that sounds. And why would Christ crucified be nonsense to the Greeks? Because it says salvation comes through a crucified Jew? And they would say, we don't know what that means. But whether it sounds offensive or nonsensical, Paul says Christ on the cross is the wisdom and power of God. It may look like weakness and foolishness, but it's actually better than anything we can imagine. Why? Because Christ crucified isn't just a miraculous sign or just a fascinating theory. It's an historical event. It's something that actually happened in the real world, in the world we live in, at a particular time and place, this really happened to a real person. Christ was crucified. Which means that the cross transcends our epistemological categories. It's not something we can recreate in a laboratory or rationalize logically. It's something else entirely. And at first, that sounds like bad news, like a stumbling block or foolishness. But here's why I think it's good news. When my friend finished telling me that crazy rock climbing story, I was like, that's an amazing story. And he goes, yeah, and I bet since you're a Christian, you have an even more amazing story. How did God show himself to you? And at first, I was kind of like, I don't really have any cool stories like that. I mean, I've seen things happen in the world that I think God is responsible for, answered prayers and that sort of thing. But I've never seen a rock light up like a Christmas tree. But when my neighbor asked me how God had shown himself to me, my answer is this. Jesus died and rose again. I wasn't there to see it, but I believe that it happened. And when my other friend got done explaining his intellectual journey of how the existence of love convinced him of the existence of God, I so badly wanted to be able to tell a story like his too, of how I also used to be a skeptical atheist, but through careful study and deduction, I too had arrived at the logical conclusion that there must be a God. But the truth is, I've always believed in God. There was never a time I didn't. And pretty much the first thing I learned about God was that Jesus died and rose again. So I've had my share of doubts and deconstruction, but in the end, even if I can't explain it, I still believe it. Christ crucified is the way we know God. It doesn't sound as smart or as sexy as some of the other answers, but God doesn't just give us a supernatural supernatural miracle to witness or a philosophical explanation to ponder he gives us something even better he gives us himself he comes to us as a person to know and to love and to trust and God reveals himself to us in Christ on the cross so the next question is when we look at the cross what do we see what does Christ crucified revealed to us about God and life with God? Well, we could probably probe the depths of that question for the rest of our lives, and I actually intend to, but let me share just a couple thoughts for today. First, what we see is that the cross reveals the wisdom of God in a world of injustice. 
One of my joys as a dad is introducing my kids to the wonderful world of music. We use our drive to school every morning as a time for what we call music education, where I choose a band or an artist they need to know, and we listen to snippets of five or six of their songs, and I tell them everything I know about the music, and we talk about what we hear in the recording and how the music makes us feel and what we think about it. Um, I've got a list of 180 artists that we're working our way through. Everything from Aretha Franklin to Frank Sinatra to Guns N' Roses to Beethoven, The Clash, Miles Davis, all kinds of stuff. Well, a few days ago, we came to Billie Holiday, the jazz singer from the 30s and 40s. And we listened to a few of her classic love songs. And then we came to a song called Strange Fruit. Strange Fruit is a protest song about the lynching of black Americans. It came out during the height of what's called the lynching era, which was from 1880 to 1940. In those 60 years, and remember this is after the Civil War, after slavery was abolished, nearly 5,000 black men and women were lynched by white mobs all around our country. And this wasn't just something that was happening in secret. It was often a public spectacle. They'd announce it in advance in the newspaper, on the radio, and crowds of up to 20,000 people would come watch to be entertained. This is a crop of the photo that inspired the song, Strange Fruit. It's in Marion, Indiana in 1930. A crowd of thousands of white men, women, and children gathered to celebrate the lynching of two black men, Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith, in the county courthouse square. These men were publicly murdered, but no one was ever charged for their deaths. That was the world Billie Holiday was living in as an African-American woman in the 1930s. So listen to the first verse of her song. Southern trees bearing a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood on the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. This was not the kind of thing Billy was supposed to be singing about. And this song made some waves. Some historians even say that this song marked the beginning of the civil rights movement. And in 1999, Time Magazine named Strange Fruit the Song of the Century. But at the time, the song didn't go over very well, especially with Billy's white fan base, and actually eventually led to her being arrested on drug charges by the federal government. Spectacle lynching of black Americans isn't something we like to talk about. In Billie Holiday's era, or in ours. In fact, it may have been a dad fail on my part making the kids listen to that song on their way to school. Everybody was pretty bummed. But as Christians living in the United States, we have to talk about it, even if it's un uncomfortable. James H. Cohn, who's considered the father of black theology, says this about lynching. An unspeakable crime, it is a memory that most white Americans would prefer to forget. For African Americans, the memory of disfigured black bodies swinging in the southern breeze is so painful that they too try to keep these horrors buried deep down in their consciousness. 
until, like a dormant volcano, they erupt uncontrollably, causing profound agony and pain. But as with the evils of chattel slavery and Jim Crow segregation, blacks and whites and other Americans who want to understand the true meaning of the American experience need to remember lynching. To forget this atrocity leaves us with the fraudulent perspective of this society and the meaning of the Christian gospel for this nation. What an interesting claim Cohn makes here. He says that as U.S. Americans, we have to talk about lynching, not only to understand the history of our nation, but to understand the meaning of the gospel. What is the lynching of black Americans have to do with the gospel of Jesus. Well, our sisters and brothers in the black church have recognized the similarities between the cross and the lynching tree for many years now. They clearly see the crucifixion of Christ as a first century lynching. Listen to how Cohn describes the similarities between the cross and the lynching tree. As Jesus was an innocent victim of mob hysteria and Roman imperial violence, many African Americans were innocent victims of white mobs thirsting for blood in the name of God and in defense of segregation, white supremacy, and the purity of the Anglo-Saxon race. Both the cross and the lynching tree were symbols of terror, instruments of torture and execution reserved primarily for slaves, criminals, and insurrectionists, the lowest of the low in society. Both Jesus and blacks were publicly humiliated, subjected to the utmost indignity and cruelty. They were stripped in order to be deprived of dignity, then paraded, mocked, and whipped, pierced, derided, and spat upon, tortured for hours in the presence of jeering crowds for popular entertainment. So Cohn and others are teaching us that the lynching tree really is the most powerful and accurate depiction of the cross that we have. And even when the Apostle Peter preaches the gospel to the Gentiles for the very first time, listen to how he describes the crucifixion. And we are witnesses of all that Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. So why does it matter that we see the cross as a lynching tree? And what difference does it make that Jesus was lynched? I read a fascinating article a few years ago by an African-American woman who had become pretty bitter because of all the racism and hatred that she had experienced as a black person growing up in this country. And she had basically come to a place where she just couldn't believe in a God who would allow her and her people to go through that kind of suffering and injustice. But then, when she was in graduate school and they were reviewing the teachings of Christianity, they had this black theologian who came as a guest lecturer, and he started talking about the cross in a way this woman had never considered before. And he compared the cross to the lynching tree. And that's when it hit her. She began to realize that Jesus didn't just suffer for us, which is something she'd always been told about the cross. 
but he also suffered with us. So remember in Matthew 25 when Jesus tells his disciples that when he was hungry, they gave him something to eat. When he was thirsty, they gave him something to drink. When he was naked, they clothed him. When he was homeless, they took him in. And how did the disciples reply? They go, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? When did we see you naked or homeless? Well, what's the answer? The answer is on the cross. Jesus was hungry and thirsty on the cross. He was naked and homeless on the cross. On the cross, God became oppressed. On the cross, God became a victim of injustice. The cross is where we see how far God is willing to go to identify with the lowest of the low in our world. Here's how Tim Keller puts it in Generous Justice. Here's Jesus, the Son of God, who knows what it's like to be the victim of injustice, to stand up to power, to face a corrupt system and be killed for it. He knows what it's like to be lynched. I'm not sure how you believe in a God remote from injustice and oppression, but Christianity doesn't ask you to believe in that. This is how the cross reveals the wisdom of God in a world of injustice. Let's look at one more thing we see when we look at Christ crucified. And that's that the cross reveals the power of God in co-suffering love. I think that sometimes when we think about Jesus dying on the cross, we have this picture that Jesus is our hero, our advocate, our savior, but that God, the Father, is some angry vengeful, vindictive judge in the sky. In fact, we even have a song. We sang it last Sunday about how when Jesus was on the cross, the Father turned his face away. And I get it. As Jesus is hanging there, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins. We know that he died in our place. But when we look at the cross... If the conclusion we come to is that God is an angry, vindictive judge who can't stand to be in the presence of sin, then we're not seeing clearly. So here's the question. What was God doing while Jesus was dying? Where was God when Christ was on the cross? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Where was God when Christ was on the cross? God was in Christ. Not far off, distant, angry, indifferent. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So when we look at the cross, the picture isn't primarily that Jesus is saving us from God. It's that Jesus is revealing God to us. So don't think of God mainly as an angry judge. Think of him as a man hanging on a cross, dying for people who don't love him. The cross reveals the power of God in co-suffering love. So if God was in Christ... 
when Christ was suffering, then maybe that tells us something about where God is when we're suffering. Because we all know what it feels like when it seems like God has forsaken us too. Sometimes it seems like God is far off or distant or angry or indifferent to our pain. But if God is in Christ on the cross, then we know that can't be the case. If you grew up anything like I did in the evangelical or Protestant tradition, then you've probably seen a lot of crosses, but you probably haven't seen nearly as many crucifixes. A crucifix is a cross with Christ still on it. And for whatever reason, at some point, Protestants mostly abandoned crucifixes for empty crosses. And I think we actually lost something when we did. So look at these two images. I like both images, and I think they're both important. But the empty cross, for most of us, it's meaningful, but it's kind of abstract. The crucifix, on the other hand, keeps Jesus on the cross. The empty cross makes it easier for us to reduce the gospel to a kind of mathematical equation or theological formula. But the crucifix tells the story of a co-suffering God. When we look at Jesus on the cross, we know that he didn't just suffer for us. He suffered with us. Dallas Willard put it like this. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we don't have to. He died on the cross so that we would join him. So if God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, then the invitation to us is to come to Christ, to have our sins forgiven, to be reconciled to God, and then also to join Jesus on his mission of reconciliation in the world. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he's committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation. The wisdom and power of the cross call us to worship a crucified God and to live a cruciform or cross-shaped life, entering into the brokenness of the world in a co-suffering love. In just a moment, Sean will come and lead us to the Lord's table. And this is an opportunity to join Jesus in one of the most real ways he's given us. So, will you join me in this prayer of confession? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.